One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the FT Business Books podcast, the place to discover the best in business writing. I'm Isabel Berwick, the Assistant Features Editor, and with me is FT Management Columnist Andrew Hill. Hello. We're talking to the six authors who've made the shortlist for the 2017 FT and McKinsey Business Book of the Year Award. It's the world's most coveted prize for business writing. You can find the shortlist at ft.com forward slash book award. And we'll find out on November the 6th who's won. This week, we have an unusual format. Our colleague John Authors, the FT's senior investment correspondent who's based in New York, has interviewed shortlisted writer Andrew Lowe, the author of Adaptive Markets, Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. Here's John in conversation with Andrew Lowe. Thanks very much for joining us on the phone from Massachusetts today. And many congratulations on your nomination on the shortlist for our Business Book of the Year award. Let's start. Your book is called Adaptive Markets. Take us through what the adaptive markets theory, the hypothesis you present in that book is, and how it's different from a theory that many people have talked about and that many people have vilified, the efficient markets hypothesis. Well, it's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, The adaptive markets hypothesis is really a reframing of our view of financial markets from the physical to the biological, instead of looking at markets as a kind of a mechanical system with immutable laws of motion, the adaptive markets hypothesis takes the perspective that markets are really a human endeavor, and as a result, subject to more of the laws of biology than physics. And where it differs from the efficient markets hypothesis is that it provides a a more complete theory. So the efficient markets hypothesis, which says that prices fully reflect all available information, isn't wrong, it's just incomplete and doesn't account for the fact that periodically human behavior takes over market dynamics and rather than looking at traditional economic relationships of supply and demand, we have to start thinking more about the emotional reaction of investors and uh, how they interact with each other over time. Now that's fascinating because obviously uh, we've all lived through many uh, big market crashes and bubbles in the last couple of decades, and they do indeed appear to be moments of high emotion. So just to think this analogy through more to biology, you're saying that we should think of analyzing market behavior in the same way that you might analyze predators and wildebeest on the Serengeti rather than the way you would try to analyze Brownian motion in a test tube. That's exactly right. Imagine if anthropologists from an alien species come down to our planet and start looking at the various flora and fauna of our society and uh, begin to analyze Homo sapiens and to try to document how their behavior actually affects the world. 
you can imagine that this type of a perspective would be quite natural to mm. understand that financial markets is really an adaptation that we've developed to deal with uh, some of our environmental challenges. Okay, now let's try to frame this with a, a very practical recent example. Yes, we're recording this. We're only a few days away from the 30th anniversary of the uh, Black Monday crash of 1987, by most measures the single worst day for the uh, US stock market ever. How, using the adaptive markets hypothesis, would you help explain an event which the efficient markets hypothesis, you would have to say, would regard as impossible, that the actual correct underlying price of the corporate America shouldn't have fallen by more than 20% in one day? How do you go about explaining what happened that day? Well, this is exactly the motivation for the adaptive market hypothesis. When you look at events like October 19, 1987, you have to ask yourself, were the prices in markets off the day before that event, or were they completely off the day after that event? It's kind of hard to argue that the prices were correct on both those days, given that not a lot of information was revealed on the 19th. In fact, a more compelling explanation is that the various different participants in the marketplace ultimately changed their perspective and caused that kind of a sharp decline, specifically the amount of hedging that was going on with portfolio insurance and the significant kinds of volume that were being traded in the futures markets versus the spot markets ultimately caused this kind of a a sharp reversal. And so by looking at the various different species that were trading at that time, by looking at the financial ecosystem, you can actually get a much better picture of why these kinds of movements occur from time to time. And we do know that they will occur and they will continue to occur from time to time. So we have to be prepared for that kind of cyclical type of uh, behavior. Now, that raises the very interesting question. At the moment, many people worry. Many people tell me to ask the industry, do we have new versions of the species that caused the trouble 30 years ago back in the market's ecosystem? Does the presence of high-frequency trading, does the the presence of exchange-traded funds or of uh, any kind of a quantitative strategy that attempts in some way to control volatility, in many ways you would think was of its nature something that we can't control, how similar using these biological ways of looking at how similar is the ecosystem now compared to 30 years ago? Well, I think there are some common themes. So you certainly have competition among various different species. But actually, there are quite a few new species that have emerged and some that have gone out of existence. For example, not only do we have high-frequency traders that are still in the system, but we now have algorithmic traders, which is a much larger proportion of the investment universe. And so it's really the battle of the bots in the sense that algorithms now are competing with each other as opposed to individual human portfolio managers. And we haven't really sat down to work through the implications of these various different competing algorithms. But that's definitely something that's now part of the ecosystem that wasn't there 30 years ago. Now, this is fascinating. Does this raise the issue that perhaps we now need to start worrying about an alternative, an artificial intelligence-led future rather than use biological models? Or is it still the case that these are algorithms that were ultimately written, processes that were set in train by human people with human failings? 
Well, I don't think we have to worry yet about AI taking over mm-hmm. financial markets. I think that that's something that may be down the road another few decades. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's no doubt that a very simplistic version of that is going on, uh, meaning that mm-hmm. a number of us have turned over our investment authority to certain kinds of algorithms. A simple example is index funds. Index products have been the fastest growing segment of the financial industry mm-hmm. over the course of the last couple of decades. And if you think about what that means, it means that we're turning over our ability to choose multiple stocks for our portfolio to an algorithm. The algorithm may be as simple as, let's invest in all 500 of the S&P 500 stocks in proportion to their market capitalization, or it can be as sophisticated as one of these uh, hedge fund the dynamic trading strategies. So in either case, we are turning over control of our portfolio to an algorithm. And these algorithms obviously are part of the same ecosystem. And so they are going to be interacting with each other. We have so many algorithms going on today that we don't actually know what interactions are likely to be. So we really need to spend more time thinking about how that ecosystem has changed and try to model it the way that an ecologist would for a new ecosystem. Really fascinating. Now, that's the job that you as an academic and as an author have is to explain this to us, to uh, work out what is going on. Let's talk about regulators and the job they have to do. Obviously, much criticised after the uh, the crisis of 10 years ago now. Obviously, something must have gone wrong with regulation for that crisis to be so bad. Have the necessary changes in the way we regulate the financial industry been made to help us control it or channel it in the way we need to? Well, I think that the answer is yes. There are ways that we can change regulation in order to address some of these concerns, but we're only part way there towards addressing them. And I think one of the reasons is because we don't really think about regulation the way that the adaptive markets hypothesis would, which is that the regulators are themselves part of the ecosystem, and they are just as affected by the kinds of cycles of fear and greed as the rest of us. In particular, if you think about what a bank regulator is supposed to be doing, they're supposed to be taking away the punch bowl when the party just gets going. And from a human behavior perspective, it's actually quite difficult to expect any individual to play that kind of role because when things are going well, when the economy is growing, when default rates are low and all of the various different indicators are signaling continued economic prosperity, why would a regulator risk stalling that kind of a wonderful trend by starting to cut back on leverage and increasing capital requirements? We now know that that's what they should be doing. But from a human nature perspective, it's very difficult to see how they can engage in that kind of discretionary intervention without some good reason. And so the very act of regulation requires a certain negative feedback loop that doesn't really exist in the system. In fact, at the peak of the housing bubble in the United States, nobody was feeling any pain. And so it's very difficult in that kind of environment to start cutting back on otherwise profitable business activities. So the answer is for us to first recognize that regulators are themselves part of this system that needs to be adjusted 
in a very specific way. And once we understand the dynamics of how the various different species in our ecosystem react to each other, we can then begin to build the kind of automated structures that will allow regulators to be able to implement some of these policies without causing a great deal of, of human challenges to their decision-making processes. You used the word automated there, which is quite interesting. I mean, if we use the analogy of the punch bowl at the party, obviously you've got to be a very strong-willed and unusual individual to be the person who takes the punch bowl away at the party just as everybody is beginning to enjoy themselves. That's a way to make yourself very unpopular indeed, potentially. Are you saying that we need ultimately to have formulaic regulation or regulation by some form of of a robotic system or how do we take that human flaw out of the uh, ecosystem? Well, we need adaptive regulation. That is regulation that adjusts to market conditions so that when times are good, the regulations become more stringent and when times are bad, the regulations are more relaxed to encourage economic growth. That kind of adaptive regulation can only be most effective when we understand the various different flora and fauna of that financial ecosystem. We can't build adaptive regulation without understanding what all of the various different species are doing and what they're looking for and how they're going to react. And so it's building a more sophisticated version of the regulatory infrastructure that takes into account the adaptation that all of us are going to engage in. Now, that leads to an interesting question with the hypothesis with which we started, which is the efficient markets hypothesis. To what extent do you think that efficient markets hypothesis was to blame for what happened in 1987 or in 2007-2008? And have we managed actually to remove the notion of the efficient markets hypothesis from the way markets are regulated and priced now? Or do we actually still have a system that implies some kind of systematic rationality, some kind of a systematic normal distribution to uh, to returns? Well, so there are a couple of questions in that broader query. Uh, so let me take them uh, somewhat separately. So the first question about was the efficient markets hypothesis to blame, I would have to say no. And that may be kind of surprising given that the point of the adaptive markets hypothesis is to extend and Mm. integrate the efficient markets hypothesis with human behavior. Mm. But let me explain. The reason that I say no is because if you take a look at the market prices of the various different securities that figured most prominently in the financial crisis, Mm. things like collateralized debt obligations, mortgage-backed securities, and the Mm. alphabet soup of all of these other derivatives, Mm. what you'd find by looking back at those prices is that they actually reflected the increased risks associated with the so-called toxic assets, particularly mortgage-backed securities. So the mortgage-backed securities that were subprime actually offered higher yields than comparable securities that were AAA rated as well. Mm-hmm. And so if an investor who believed in efficient markets looked at those prices, those investors would have said, oh, these are offering higher yield. That must mean they are actually containing higher risk. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. They did contain risk, illiquidity risk, and the risk of default under certain circumstances. So in that respect, I don't think efficient markets can be blamed. In fact, if anything, 
it's the mistaken belief by certain investors that they were getting a, a good deal and that they somehow discovered uh, an arbitrage opportunity that nobody else had uncovered. On the other hand, I would add that the regulatory infrastructure that was really governing the system, that structure did presuppose that markets worked pretty well and that the system could be left to its own devices. So in that respect, I guess the idea of efficient markets did influence the regulatory milieu that ultimately led to these difficulties. Hmm. So I think we do need to have a more complete view of efficient markets. The fact that it works much of the time, but there are some very important periods where efficiency really doesn't hold and that we need to supplement that with an understanding of how market dynamics can be radically altered by waves of human behavior, whether it's panic or irrational exuberance. Okay, and I guess the other critical point is that it's exactly when uh, markets aren't regulating themselves default from uh, efficiency when we most need regulation to uh, help us out. So that was interesting. What I like most about this book is the way that, as John Authors points out, Andrew makes what could be a very dry subject into something that really does have people at its heart. As he says, Homo sapiens hasn't had the time to adjust to the new realities of modern life. And that poses certain challenges and opportunities for investors, portfolio managers and the rest of us. It's as though we're sort of trying to catch up and we haven't noticed that we're trying to catch up with what we've invented. You know, our biology hasn't caught up with the markets. I think that's right. There's quite a lot of interesting ways in which he takes the idea of efficient markets. And I think one of the things that... I liked about it is I expected it to be a sort of takedown of efficient markets theory, which, as he explains, is the sort of basis of the way markets have worked. But as he says early in the book, rather delicately dancing round the challenge to efficient markets, there's a difficulty in academia that you make your name either by coming up with a new theory or by destroying some established theory. And actually, He does the former, but he doesn't do the latter. He says at one point that efficient markets and adaptive markets are sort of on a spectrum. So he's saying that in some cases, efficient markets do seem to work over the long range, of course. And then, But the people element that he brings in really does bring the whole thing to life, I think. Because people panic. Exactly. And that actually hadn't occurred to me before, that that's where the efficient markets hypothesis stops, is when irrational exuberance or extreme panic, and when we do the things that make us people, the flight and fight. Yes. And I just think this is something that has really struck me with these business books on this list, that they're really about people. These are great stories. Even a book that could be quite dry like this one is is extraordinary in terms of, you know, what it tells us about who we are. Yeah, and this is one of the things that I've noticed in looking at the way in which the Book Award has evolved over, over recent years is that, in particular, with the, in the strain of writing about technology, for example, we've begun to see entered for the award and getting through to the shortlist in some cases more books in the last couple of years that have developed this human aspect, both in finance and in technology. And there are obviously similarities, as you point out, with some of the other books on the list. I mean, I I thought it was very interesting what he said in the interview and in the book about regulators, that of course they are part of this ecosystem, normally a, a word I don't like, but in this case very relevant to his theory. And that comes out, for example, from David Enrich's book, another of the shortlisted titles, The Spider Network, which is about the LIBOR scandal, where clearly your regulators are involved, if you like, in working out how far they turn a 
almost a blind eye to the scandal that's unfolding. And clearly, it's almost like field work, the spider network, for the hypothesis that Andrew Lowe puts out there about adaptive markets and the role of humans in them. Yes, because he talks quite a lot about the role of AI and algorithms. And that is sort of interesting. I mean, we've still got the human regulators at the heart of this. But is he saying that we need to turn the process of regulation over to something more automated to take that punch bowl away when we need to? Well, that's one aspect. I mean, I think he talks, I think, about dynamic regulation, just as he talks about dynamic markets and about the way in which you might well develop to have index funds that are constructed and that perform in a more dynamic way. They take account of the facts, he says at one point, that a mob of irrational investors has suddenly entered. And instead of the whole market skewing towards this irrational point of view, they would start to offset that irrational view on the basis of a sort of longer term algorithmically calculated view. But that he categorises, I think, in the last chapter as sort of Star Trek economics. It's more of a sort of long range idea. How worried did it make you, this whole sort of out of control ecosystem that we could potentially have? He said it's several decades out. Yes. I mean, I think that if his hypothesis is accepted and becomes something that is taken into account, I think it may at some point suddenly be superseded by people saying, oh, look, there's a much better automated way in which we can invest and therefore we'll press the button on that and it'll already be too late at that point to take into account as he points out the fact that these algorithms are made by humans and therefore they may have some of the same defect. One of the things that we were talking about earlier was the role of subtitles in this year's list and this one's got a really interesting subtitle Adaptive Markets Financial Evolution at the Speed of Thought. What do you make of that one compared to some of the other ones we've seen? I'm not sure it serves him terribly well. Ah. I mean, to me, it makes it a little bit drier. I like the fact that this book, a bit like some of the other ones that were on the long list this year, The Wisdom of Finance by Mihir Desai, which is about putting financial markets through a sort of lens of the humanities, comparing it with films and so on. He doesn't do that exactly. It's a more profound book, I think, than than Wisdom of Finance. But it gets into a way of keeping us engaged through some of the rather playful ways in which he uh, describes the things that he's talking about. I mean, he has in one of the early chapters, he talks about under a subtitle, the birth of efficient markets. And then the next subtitle is what to expect when you're expecting, which of course is a title <laughs> of, a, of a book about, about becoming a new parent. So there's a quite a nice kind of playful line going through, just as you think it's going to become a bit too mathematical and a bit too theoretical. He rescues it with this human view. And, and as I say, Star Trek comes up in the final chapter well, for those I'm who stick with all it. all in favour of Star Trek, as, as we know. So, as is customary, we asked Andrew Lowe what he thought of the five other books on the shortlist and whether he had a favourite business book of all time. And here's what he told John Authors. Could I finish by asking two questions as the uh, book awards ceremony comes close. Have you had the chance to read any of the other books on the shortlist? And do you have any favourites or any that particularly take your fancy? So I haven't read all of them, but I've read a couple. And I have to say that I was really struck by the two that are not surprisingly closest to the kind of work that I do. The the book by David Enrich on the spider network, Mm. that obviously is a fascinating cautionary tale of what can go wrong when you've got markets that are so large and relatively opaque. Mm. So the spider network, I think, is a really fascinating story that I am hoping we will learn from. 
The other book that, that actually I found really close to my own perspective is Walter Scheidel's The Great Leveler, because uh, that story tells the narrative of how inequality is systematically related to revolution and bias. We kind of knew that already, thanks to uh, Frederick Engels and Karl Marx. Uh, when you have nothing to lose but your chains, uh, you're likely to get some very bad outcomes. And in a way, that really supports the adaptive markets hypothesis in that um, economic systems are nothing more nor less than adaptations that the Homo sapiens have developed in order to deal with an otherwise hostile environment. And economic inequality is systematically related to the kind of violence that we've seen uh, over the centuries. Now, that's a fascinating insight. Also, it just occurs to me, the spider network, which is about the LIBOR uh, scandal, actually does have a biological metaphor in its uh, title. Absolutely. And looking much more broadly than this year, what's your personal favorite business book that you've ever read? What was the one that has had the most influence and has been most useful for you? So, you know, that's a terrible question because mm. uh, to force me to limit my choice to one book is uh, a virtual impossibility. But uh, but I've been struggling with this question for, mm. for a little bit. Mm. So I can maybe bring it down to two books and an article. Well done. Bit. That's but, good. But they have, a, they have a common theme, as you'll see. Mm. So the two books that have really influenced me in thinking about business is The uh, the Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbronner. Right. It's a very old book. And uh, the other book is Alfred Chandler's uh, The Visible Hand. And the, the two books are a nice pairing because they focus on business at opposite ends of the spectrum. At the very micro level, Chandler's history tells us how companies have evolved and become successful through the actions of middle management and how they basically take a business idea and bring it to fruition. And it also is a very evolutionary perspective. When you take a look at the vast expanse of history, you can actually see evolution occurring in the business world. And at the macro level, Halbrunner shows us what the implications are for societies as a whole, and, and it gives us a sense of perspective of just how important these kinds of issues are. And the third reference, which is a research article, it's not a book, but it should have been or could have been, is Ronald Coase's The Nature of the Firm, because that, in a nutshell, actually provides the theory that integrates Chandler's micro view of business development and Heilbrunner's societal view. It shows us what the origin of business is and, and really describes why from an evolutionary perspective, the modern corporation is such a powerful idea, and it really has been able to bring humanity to the point where we are now, able to reproduce without limit and occupying virtually every ecological niche on this planet and, and even out off the planet. That sounds fascinating, Andrew. I must admit I haven't read that article. I'm now feeling uh, I have to run away and do so. Andrew, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Good luck when the judges make their announcement, and thank you very much for talking to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Andrew, thinking with the institutional memory you have of the Business Books Prize, can you think of any other books that are particularly stuck in your mind that have made this really interesting link between people and finance, just really bringing it to life for the reader? Well, I noticed that he references the one of the academic papers that John Coates produced. And John Coates wrote a book that was on our long list a few years ago called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, which is about how traders are affected by changes in their levels of hormones and so on and and the fight or flight problem that they face. So that's one that I think 
probably does feed into this in one way. A couple of past winners which occurred to me as I read it, one was Mohamed Elerian's When Markets Collide, which won in 2008, just in the teeth of the financial crisis about how to handle difficult investment challenges. And Mohamed is a judge this year, so he'll have an interesting view about Andrew Lowe's book. And the other one, which again is is sort of indirectly referenced by uh, Lowe, is Raghuram Rajan's Fault Lines, which won in 2010, and which is based on the famous presentation that he made, again, in the teeth of the financial crisis to the central bank governors, their famous Jackson Hole meeting, pointing out that uh, there were these fault lines in the market and meeting great scepticism from people like Larry Summers, which Andrew Lowe talks about in the book. Those are all books, really, that are, that sort of feed into uh, Lowe's theories and hypotheses in this one. So that I think there's a, a huge range there we can get our teeth into if we've enjoyed Andrew Lowe, which I certainly did, actually, and I would recommend it to other lay readers. Well, that's it from us this week. Join us in a week's time when Emma Jacobs and Andrew Hill will be talking to another of our shortlisted authors, Ellen Powell, about her book Reset. Check out the full list at ft.com forward slash book award. You can contact us on Twitter at ftworkcareers and use the hashtag ftbizbooks. My thanks to Andrew Lowe and John Authors in the US and to Andrew Hill for joining me here in the studio and to our producer, Yanina Conboy. And please don't forget to talk to us on Twitter using the hashtag FTBizBooks. We love to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.